You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to a wide community of creatives across disciplines who challenge ideas on race and identity at a time when identity politics is at the forefront of our cultural landscapes. We hear from those who challenge the stereotypes. I'm Lou Mensah, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week, I chat with photographer Aaron Turner, a coordinator of the Centre for Photographers of Colour at the University of Arkansas School of Art. In 2014, the Centre for Photographers of Colour began as an online curatorial project to aggregate the historical and contemporary work made by artists of colour working in lens-based media. Aaron uses photography to pursue personal stories of people of colour in two main areas of the US, the Arkansas and Mississippi Deltas. Aaron also uses the view camera to create still life studies on the topics of race, history, blackness as material and the role of the black artist. He has been a New York Times portfolio participant in both 2014 and 2018. I started the chat with Aaron with one of his quotes. I use photography as a transformative process to understand place. I use the technique of photographing in intervals, returning to the same circumstances, scenarios, people and situations over and over again. That quote is in reference to my documentary work that takes place in the Arkansas Delta where I was uh born and raised relatively, um, but it's a tri-state area where Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee connect. So I pretty much grew up in that whole area uh, my entire um, way through grade school and high school and my whole undergraduate um, tenure. So, um, but it wasn't until I left the Arkansas Delta and went to Ohio University, I had a class that required me to do a 10-day shoot so you did all this prep and at the end of that 10-day shoot you made a magazine or some type of publication that represented that um, you have to do all the writing um, all the collect all the sources and things and mm. um, the professor i had um, was very detailed his name was terry eiler and he made sure that we did all these things properly as journalists as photojournalists um, for this class and so that's whole project started. That's just a little bit of the background. The techniques that I employ now as far as um, using photographing in the intervals, uh, returning to the same people and scenarios over and over, I sort of borrow those ideas from photographers like William Christianberry and Paul Graham, really start to look at their work here within the last uh, three or four years. Also, uh, the writer and photographer Teju Cole came out with this article called uh, an, an Image in Time, I believe, and it's part of his uh, column on the New York Times. So that's been a recent revelation for me as far as um, photographing in interval, intervals and looking at time. Um, I come from a photojournalism background, Ooh. and so everything was sort of about the decisive moment. Um, but the way that I photographed 
and the way that I enjoyed looking at pictures is the things that took place before and after this so-called perfect image, this perfect moment, uh, this Cartier, Cartier-Bresson um, theory. Um, and so, and it's a lot of legitimacy to that, but just for me, I didn't really connect with it. You know, I couldn't let go of my other images. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not to say that I had an editing problem or anything like that. It was just, it was more interesting what happened before and after in terms of an actual moment in time. Um, so some of my photographs um, will be, you know, six or seven images, maybe a triptych or a diptych of one moment. But then some of my other sets of photographs may be triptychs and diptychs of things that occurred over years time. Um, and so uh, I want to talk about like three different transformative processes uh, yeah. that I've sort of formulated to um, think about this work. And, you know, the first one is uh, changes in understanding of self. And so photog through photography, that gives me the opportunity for critical thinking, mm -hmm. um, using the process of photography to document my family, race and identity, mm -hmm. and the compiling of historical information uh, to reinforce critical thinking. So thinking about things about who I am, who shaped me, mm. who my relatives are, mm. where are they in their life right now, how mm. how have those relationships uh, with my different relatives and family members, have they changed? Mm. Um, and again, how have their lives changed? And I try to look at that through photography. Um, the second thing is I uh, look at uh, it's a transformative process, the revision of belief systems. Mm -hmm. So the, the opportunity to relate to others going through the same transformative process as me, mm -hmm. um, people in that same region, but thinking more specifically about my brothers, my cousins, aunts and uncles, um, using photography as an empathetic um, method of communication with others, uh, sharing with intention of creating some type of new dialogue. Ooh. And so uh, when I think about that, in terms of changing of belief systems, in, in some ways, uh, growing up, I was told I had to leave the Arkansas Delta, that there was not in an extreme way, but there, you know, if you want to do something with your life, if you want to be something, go get educated. You have to leave here, grow, um, those type of things is what I was told growing up. Uh, so those are things that were like really reinforced to me and some of the things that I really hold on to. And, you know, <laughs> funny yeah. enough, I'm the only person in my immediate family as far as my mother, my father, my father and my two brothers. I'm the only one that lives in Arkansas. I'm the only one that returned to live in Arkansas. It's just, you know, and that's why I continue to photograph here as far as documentary goes exclusively. Uh, I use documentary photography in Arkansas, in the Arkansas Delta. Mm. And so the third thing I want to talk about as far as the transformative process is changes in lifestyle. Mm. So uh, talking about leaving, um, opportunities to act on new perspectives, uh, using photography to look at representation and how people in history are represented with their photography, looking at the past and present simultaneously uh, to create new speculative spaces. Um, and also one of the original reasons I wanted to photograph the Arkansas Delta is when I saw Eugene Richards photographs, mm -hmm. another American photographer. Um, and he photographed the Arkansas region and the Arkansas Delta in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, mm -hmm. And I was flipping through his pictures, looking at his book, and 
um, you know, I would see names like West Memphis, Arkansas, Turrell, Arkansas, Earl, Arkansas, Fort City, uh, Helena, West Helena. These are all cities that I grew up frequenting as a child. And, you know, I never really looked at it through photography. So, you know, my perspective now as an insider versus Eugene Richards perspective as an outsider. Um, and so that's kind of how I contextualize everything around that work right now. When you go back to um, a place that where you've left, do you think that going there as a photographer with a critical eye enables you to be able to settle more more easily back home where everybody else left? When you've, when you've got the camera and you're examining uh, a situation critically, even if it's one that's deeply personal to you, there is still, there's not a removal from yourself and the subject but there's a different way that you can look at it, which makes it easier to process and understand your place within it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, It makes me think of the Diane Arbus quote of like the camera gives her a reason to be in those situations that she was in. Totally different photographer, totally different subject matter. Um, But that quote always resonated with me. And so in a way, this camera gives me a new way to look at where I was, where I was raised, where my values and morals come from. And Mm. so in in some ways it's easy to say, yes, you know, it legitimizes my (laughs) thought of of living in Arkansas. I have the camera. There's a reason for me to be here. And then Mm. sometimes it's very difficult to make pictures. Um, It's people think it's easy to photograph your family, but it's really Mm. not. No, it's really not. It's Yeah, it's quite difficult at times and all the times I don't make as many pictures as I would like. And, you know, that is another reason why I sort of draw back to or uh, transition to this transformative process of thinking and then letting things unfold over time um, as opposed to feeling like, I okay, I only got this time period. I'm going to rush back and oh, there's a family funeral happening. I have to get X, Y, and Z amount of pictures. I have to make sure I get a photo of my aunt, my uncle, my cousins. Instead of franticking like that, I kind of just let things unfold naturally. The pictures don't, and I kind of take back what I said earlier about just exclusively photographing in the Arkansas Delta, because like I said, I'm the only one really from my immediate family that lives here, but I have to travel to Texas and uh, Virginia and Louisiana to photograph different family members. Every time I'm around my family, I make sure I photograph them and document them. And that's mm-hmm. part of the uh, the migration, people leaving an area, where are they now? What are they doing now? Mm-hmm. We both come from the same area uh, with the same morals and values and different things like that. And so, you know, how do those things translate geographically? I've really enjoyed looking at your Isolated Truths project where you traveled um, the Atlantic coastal region um, of the states, photographing individuals identifying as having mixed racial heritage, uh, Native American, African American and European American. How did the seeds of this project begin and where did it take you? Um, I'm also interested in, in the point where a photo project like this ends the goodbyes the ending of a a project when you spent so much time I think it was approximately six months that you spent working on this project Um, and when you leave the community how the images then take on a life after the project ends you know this this there's this notion now black people don't live in Appalachia there's this um 
stereotype that, you know, there's only white hillbilly Americans that live there. But no, there's a whole history of African-American coal miners all the way from Alabama through Chattanooga and Tennessee through West Virginia and Virginia. Um, But yeah, that's a whole other topic. But um, so I was this is this project was my thesis project at Ohio University. So living in southeast Ohio in this little town called Athens, Ohio. And, you know, uh, yes, it did take me six months to do this. I spent, like, uh, a lot of times with this huge, seamless white backdrop, photo stands and lights, <laughs> just driving around in my car. It was just, it was crazy. Like, it, you know, it barely fit in my car. The roll and the lights were all the way from my trunk through my front seat. So <laughs> that was an interesting time. But I got the work done, and I re- I recorded a bunch of interviews, but I, I had this question, you know, I'm always interested in photographing the African-American experience. That's who I am. That's who my family is. And that's what I feel like I have the most authority to speak to and the most thing that I connect with. So I had this basic question, where are the black people in this area? This is a predominantly white area, but I'm asking myself, I know there's a community of black people here. There's black people that were born here et cetera, et cetera. And so I started looking around, started asking around, doing some research, found the work of the historian Henry Burke um, and his talk about the mixture of Native American, African American, European Americans uh, within his own family. Um, And then that immediately intrigued me. And then I found out about uh, Ada Adams. Uh, Henry Burke had already passed on many years ahead of the time, but then Ada Adams, uh, I forget the Historical Society Center that she is the president over uh, right now it's blanking, but she introduced me to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I heard all these stories about passing, being of a lighter complexion or being of ri- mixed race background mm-hmm. and a necessity to pass for better jobs, a better life, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. during times of segregation. And then this was also around the time in Ohio history where um, there's a um, history of sundown town. So if you're an African-American descent um, or a black person, you had to get out of town before sundown or something bad was going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, for this project, I pretty much spoke to one generation of people. So many people who had lived through segregation born in the 40s and 50s um, and lived through the 60s and 70s and 80s and things like that um, until now. Some of them, many of them are still living um, who are interviewed it, with this project? It's I also incorporate some of the Underground Railroad into it mm-hmm. as well. So the Underground Railroad went through Southeast Ohio, mm-hmm. um, and then people continued on through to Cleveland. There's many more other railroad stops and through to Canada, but mm-hmm. in Southeast Ohio, since Ohio was a free state, there were already white people, black people, and Native Americans who had separated from the Trail of Tears, already living in communities together. So there was already a mixture of people happening way back then. And then it's, it's a thing that sort of continued throughout the different parts of American history. And there's this term that I came across called Melungeon. Mm. Back, 
back then, I think it was more of a negative term. Right now, it's more of a historical sort of reference point type of term right, right now. But, you know, you still wouldn't just go up to someone and say, hey, you're Melungeon, <laughs> something like that. It, you know, it, it carries a certain connotation, but it's, it's you know, it's used in a, in a certain way and more in a historical context, at least from my understanding. And the reason I got interested in that because of my own family background uh, my great grandmother, you know, it's hard to get my grandmother to talk about this history, but, you know, one of her grandparents was a white man and she only met him once in her entire life. And this is around the time, you know, people are having 10, 12 siblings. You know, I think my great grandmother had like 14, 15 siblings. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, it was like 10 or nine or 10 of them. I haven't even met all of them. And so it's just this family trail, this family line. And um, there was a point when my grandmother, my great grandmother had Alzheimer's and I was just like a six or seven year old boy. Mm-hmm. And she started, um, these are things she would never share with my grandmother when she was a child, but she started to sort of lose her self-control in a way. And she began to share things that she had never shared in her life. And I remember this one instance when my little cousin was born, she, they presented the baby to her and she started doing these Native American chants. Wow. Or at least what I perceive to be Native American chants. But that's mm-hmm. the extent of it. I've never, never heard it again. Mm-hmm. Family don't know where it came from. Uh, and so that's one thing I've sort of been holding on to. And it, that's on my mother's side. And then on my dad's side, there, um, my, my granddad and my dad, they traced the family history all the way back to England. Mm-hmm. Um, to the first ancestors and how people got mixed in and all this kind of stuff. And so that's a whole history. So I've always been self-aware of my own family history. And so when I came across this history uh, in some from someone else, I was totally intrigued and I absolutely wanted to use photography to tell the story. So there's this whole set of black and white images. I go through the different uh, towns in Southeast Ohio where these mixtures of people and communities occurred. And then also through stopping through these little towns and photographing the people, um, I stop and I collect the stops along the Underground Railroad. It's how I sort of use it to tie everything in Mm -hmm. as far as geographic um, uh, locations uh, are concerned. But, you know, I heard different stories about uh, there's one guy in the uh, in the set of porches. His name's Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And when he was younger, he had blonde hair and blue eyes, but he identified as an African-American man or a black man. But he was of very light complexion. He could pass for white if he wanted to. People always assumed if he was white. He told me about this instance where um, and hopefully you don't have to edit this out. I don't know. But he Mm -hmm. talks about being called the N word and being called um, a the term cracker uh, from from black people. So he was called negative terms by black people and he was called negative terms by white people just because people couldn't understand how he looked from the outside, but he identified as an African-American man. He wrote his own book and got a PhD and all this type of stuff and his PhD dissertation was in the history of his own family, but he also talked about uh, different instances of like people in the region choosing not to identify as African-American and people mm-hmm. would be in the same family. So you got brothers and sisters in a family of five, but one that one person who could pass for white may choose to 
live as a white person and have a better life. And it would be these instances where they would be walking down the street and you couldn't acknowledge your family member because you would out them and and ruin their life. So there's all these little stories. I could go on forever about all the little stories that I was told. Um, But I'm trying to do a book of that work and, and sort of just settle it down. I would like to go back to Ohio and photograph people of my age and younger. Yes. So people from their mid thirties all the way up into, you know, children in high school and middle school, because um, there was a lot of students that I met at Ohio University that were of this community as well. Um, and I would show the work to people and, you know, that's my family background. That's my family story. But it's not a you know, these are just normal, everyday people living their lives that just happen mm-hmm. to have these different complexions and complexities within their family background. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, you know, you just go up to them and it's like, wow, you're from that community. And then, no, these are just normal people living their lives um, and trying to just make it um, just like everybody else. Um, but there just happens to be this history that they're a part of. You know, how did you approach this? I had to get an insider because I was an outsider at this point, even though I was uh, a black person trying to tell this story of mixed race people who identified as black. um, I had to get an okay from the person that I mentioned earlier, Ada Adams. So she would connect me with people, give me phone numbers, give me emails. I would reach out. People were a little skeptical. It took a little convincing. Of course. That's what I'm wondering, you know, when you actually Mm -hmm. have you actually sitting with them you know you've gone yeah. through the process of them saying okay but you're actually there that's still quite um a, a different scenario where you still have to gain their trust for them to be able to open up about these deeply personal and intimate you know circumstances of theirs yeah and I, i'm very protective of this work um it really has only lived on my website i've only talked about it a few other places and like I said my goal is to have a book um, mm. and I've, I've even had people reach out to me to like try to license the image images but I'm, I, I had to turn them down because I'm very protective of this this work I told them that I was using this work for a specific reason and that's something that I want to stick to because you know historically based photography is something that um, you know I really like doing and want to continue doing and I definitely don't want to lose the trust of people who have trusted me with uh, their image, their likeness. Yes. I've been been looking at your Black Alchemy series, um, Aaron, that also ap- approaches the issues of identity and racial passing in a more abstract way. You also look at the historical archive and the studio while thinking about the ideas of the Black artists as the subject, questioning what Black art is. How did you approach this and what was answered for you in this work personally as as an artist? I, I guess I would say that I'm sort of obsessed with race and identity. I want to understand it because there's all these different complexities. Mm. Everyone has their own individual opinion and story, um, but there are commonalities that exist. So I went from Ohio University straight to Rutgers for my MFA. And so I couldn't get these ideas out of my head about race and passing and identity. And so the work from Isolated Truths propelled me right into this work from a Ebony Magazine article that I found. It was from 1952. It's titled, Which is White, Which is Negro? And I'll send you a copy of it. But it's this um, quiz that was in a magazine. And it's like, 
guess which people are passing and guess which people aren't. Guess which people are actually white, but guess which people wow. are actually passing. And so this, and if you look back at old magazines and during segregation, things like this, this was widely understood and recognized that people had to pass as uh, being African-American, it had to pass for white in order to mm-hmm. achieve certain things. So this was talked about back then. You know, right now it's talked about more from a historical, sociological standpoint, but back then it was just a way of life, mm-hmm. um, I would say. But um, I was still obsessed with understanding my own family story and the act of passing and how I exist in the art world and the idea of black art being from a black artist. Uh, your work is deemed this, you know, but looking at the work of black artists who use abstraction, um, when it's in a gallery space, absent of an artist there, it, there's no signifier that really says, oh, this is a black person who painted mm-hmm. this or made this work. And so I think about artists like Jack Whitten and, and Melvin Edwards, who titled their, their pieces uh, with clues directly associated with black American history. Mm-hmm. Then it's sort of a game change for me as a young artist. Um, there's a new way of, exist- of existing. I don't necessarily have to have a black figure president in my work to be a black artist. Um, and so I'm still working through this idea. It's not something I'm going to un- abandon anytime soon. It's the foundation for my work um, to understand my own identity within different social circumstances and how I'm perceived. Um, and so who says I can't make abstract work? Who says my work is or isn't black art when it's abstract? These are questions that I'm thinking about and my work references the gaps between black artists and the art and art history and pivotal milestones in African-American histories, things like World War II, mm. black, black soldiers returning to America, facing segregation after they fought for this country, and then how that sparked things like the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Panther Movement mm. um, and the trajectory up until now. Um, but there's so much from the past that still needs to be addressed to understand where we are. Um, that's why a majority of my work references the past. Yes. And, and, I, and I make abstract work with the intent of creating a speculative space so that as many people from as many different backgrounds can enter it and sort of understand it with their own understanding and engage in conversations with each other and engage in conversations with myself. And so um, using abstraction for me is sort of like passing as a black artist in a way so it's like some of my work you see it's totally abstract absent of a black figure a black face a black historical archived image some images include me and so some things are just geometric shapes geometric abstraction um, dealing with minimalism post-minimalism things of that nature and then I take all those things that I'm interested in and then sometimes I interject a black figure I interject myself Um, I'm present within the work and so I'm sort of balancing uh in these these two sides of the art world i guess or these dealing with these two identities within myself uh using my work to express that moving on with that idea to how black artists are currently viewed perhaps by the art and publishing world i do see an more of an open armed approach at the moment for people uh, art directors publishers galleries to try to explore the work of black artists and photographers 
but at the same time which is a which can be seen as as a good thing and i don't know about you but at the same time i do worry about the fetishization of blackness um and the idea that if we we now you know uh, include a diversity strategy mm. and have black artists and black photographers that can undo the lack of representation to which we've previously contributed but with that I see sometimes there's rather than an inclusive approach there's more of a looking in approach sort of a let's look at let's look at this work let's look at this work from black people rather than the inclusivity that obviously really is the is the ideal here mm -hmm. and it concerns me um and I think it was one of your guests, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Bethany um, who mentioned that we are moving forward, um, well, we, we will be moving forward when black photographers are being commissioned to work on projects other than those on the black experience. Um, so I suppose there's two questions here. How, how are black artists being viewed currently, but also that sometimes what we want is to be commissioned for work that also is not about the black experience. And there's a tension there. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm commissioned, um, I'm I'm writing more currently than, than photographing. So if I'm commissioned to write a piece on a subject that isn't about my personal understanding of an experience um, with a particular interest in race, because that's my interest as it is yours, I feel ambiguous about accepting it, as I feel that our experiences are still undervalued, undershared. These are things that I'm always thinking about. And right now it is sort of a, you know, I wouldn't say a trend, not to take anything away from black artists, you know, artists like myself. Um, there's artists that are making very meaningful work, very talented artists. And right now there is fetishization of blackness and work made by black artists. Um, and looking at older artists, uh, the recognition is well-deserved, but on some levels, some people may describe it as problematic or in a way of causing, it can cause certain issues. And I'll get into those. And, you know, recently, Kira Mae Weems um, addressed an image from her kitchen table series selling twice of his projected price. I think it was projected to sell at an auction for like twenty-five dollars to $30,000, but it ended up selling for $70,000. And that was a big, you know, a big deal. I didn't, um, know, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so it's like, um, you know, there was a lot of articles, people, a lot of people covered it. A lot of people commented mm. on it. And in a recent radio interview that she did with a writer, um, they were interviewing each other and I, I should have got the quote on this better, but to sum it up, her response was it's about time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Basically yeah. that, that was her response to that. Um, but then looking at Carrie Mae Williams, she's been doing this for a while though. And so recently the San Francisco museum of modern art sold a Rothko painting for like $50.1 million, yeah. um, in order to acquire work specifically made by women and artists of color. So they acquired like six works by women and at least six works by artists of color. Mm -hmm. And some of those artists were Norman Lewis, um, Micheline Thomas, um, who who really looked up to Kira Mae Weems. And, you know, the reason she does what she does is because of Kira Mae Weems. Uh, people like Frank Bowling and Alma Thomas, some of these same abstract artists that I'm looking at in my work and, mm -hmm. and you know, saying, and so think about that, I, that thing that just happened. But then last year, Injadeka Crosby, 
she's a painter. And there was a Wall Street Journal article. It was talking about a few years before 2017, her paintings were selling for around $3,000. And then in 2018, one of her paintings that sold for that much ended up selling for $3.1 million in an auction. The article was going over these different details. It was talking about how she wanted to make sure her prices didn't climb to levels she couldn't sustain. And then the article includes details of her negotiating different details about buying her paintings back, encouraging private sales versus auctions moving forward. Uh, Also, she was making efforts to make sure she knew who had her paintings, who bought them, who was in possession of them. And there was a lot of back and forth uh, between who was representing her, you know, her gallery at that time when these different things were going on. So that details a lot. But then then recently, a younger artist, um, Shabalala Self, the New York Times just talked about a piece that sold for $10,000. Originally, it sold for almost $400,000 recently. And sales like this can have a potential to undermine an emerging artist's market. She's an amazing painter, very talented. But again, like I said, this could feed into the narrative that Black art is trendy right now. Because it it gets a little bit dicey when you involve money and recognition. I don't know. It's still something I'm trying to figure out and understand. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Aaron, um, I want to bring your podcast to everyone's attention because I've recently come across it and I've listened to every single episode and sometimes more than once. It's kind of my go to podcast now. And I'm just waiting, thinking, OK, well, when's the next one coming? <laughs> but, um, but what prompted your social media presence and your decision to broadcast and so not only work in your own way and work for yourself, but to share your ideas and, and your thoughts um, on other photographers work and have discussions with the other um, photographers also and also set up your Instagram page, Photographers of Colour. Mm-hmm. So Photographers of Color, for me, it began in 2014, shortly after I ended my time at Ohio University. By the time I left there, I wanted to be a photo editor. I didn't necessarily want to be a daily shooter. One of the things that I took from Ohio University is looking at other people's work, building a community. And I wasn't just looking at artists of color's work. I was looking at everybody's work that I came into contact with, and I could see talent in people, but I could see the lack of opportunity for people and mainly for people of color. And I can see talent in people. I hope to put myself in a position as a photo editor, be in that position to have the agency and the power in a way to sort of uh, pick people and assign people who are being overlooked. And so that's how Photographers of Color came for me. And, And right now I'm of the mindset of not waiting for anybody else to assign value to our work. Mm. We can do we can do it ourselves. We have to, you know, take our own agency back and say, yes, this work is valuable. Publish our own books, uh, make our own platforms, create our own grant funding, all those things and above. And so those are the things that have to keep going forward. And that's what uh, Photographers of Color is about. The Center for Photographers of Color is about. Mm. And so and the podcast came about as a way to give people a platform. I'm a big advocate and a big um, fan of hearing the artists speak about the work themselves. Because mm-hmm. we can hear other people talk about it all day long, but to hear it straight from the artist's mouth, their intentions, their background, their story, uh, what they care about, that's what the podcast is about. Recently, Dana Scruggs, she was a photographer, a black photographer who photographed the cover for Rolling Stone, first African-American to do so, and Mm -hmm. that's in 2018. 
So that's just crazy to think about. And so recently she spoke about that. I'm not sure exactly where, but I saw this on the Authority Collective's uh, Instagram page, which is another platform that's sort of championing people of color within the um, editorial photography industry. So I I just want to read a few quotes that she mentioned. She said, with being the first so many times, and I've shot multiple magazine covers since then, and I've probably been the first on a bunch of them, but at a certain point, I stopped asking if I was the first. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I just stopped asking because I want to know that most likely I'm the first um, to either shoot for a publication or to be the first black photographer to shoot the cover of a publication. And I don't want to be the first anymore. I want publications and brands to hire other black people and be mindful of the talent that's out there. There's so many black people out there who have the capacity, but they're not given the opportunity because of nepotism and because of people in the position to hire, not looking outside their social circle. And so for me, this perfectly sums up how a lot of black photographers feel. But this has been going on for a while, going back to people like Roy DeCarava and Gordon Parks, shooting editorially and their different struggles within that up until now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me think of the term gatekeepers. It's up to yeah. them to sort of relinquish these grips in a way, yes. um, dealing with the pressure, you know, dealing with the pressures of their market, mm-hmm. uh, almost questioning, is there enough work to go around sometime? Yeah. Um, if you go back and look at Ebony and Jet archives, they supported the careers of a lot of black photographers during their tenure of existence. Mm-hmm. And that, Johnson Publishing photo archive is up for auction this week. <laughs> I saw that today, you know, I was yeah. going to put that on Instagram. I just really care about who who buys this archive. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, yeah. and going back to Dana Scruggs, uh, Rolling Stone cover, and then Tyler Mitchell being the first black photographer to shoot a, a Vogue cover, you know, yeah. nothing has really changed in what those two photographers were doing before. It's yeah. just that they were given an opportunity and it's amazing to see their growth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the conversation that happens now is there are a lot of black photographers um, who even photograph for Nat- National Geographic now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of people calling out Nat Geo for their past and how they've represented people of color and how they deal, deal with uh, colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, this Nat Geo Summit every year and lots of people go and get invited. In recent years, they've had people of color present their work, but mm-hmm. it's usually one person and you know they've shared their thoughts on feeling alienated or you know I've seen conversations or spoken with people and you know they've detailed like having awkward social interactions with the other uh, majority of dominant people that are there um, who are not of color and so you know there's all these different things you know things are sort of going back to what you talked about earlier the fetishization People just checking off a box or are they really trying to engage and change things so yeah absolutely and you know when I um whenever I'm following what um, National Geographic are doing or they're having a summit or you know some kind of event and you look at the social media and you know they shoot a group shot of who's there every single time I'm like I still can't believe I can't see a black face in that group very similar with Magnum Photography Group over here still a long way to go and yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure how active on Twitter you are, but there's these conversations are happening on Twitter a lot mm. and <laughs> and other places, too. But, um, you know, there's the past few months, you know, different things come out for Nat Geo or 
uh, other prize um, results from different prize, big photo prizes are revealed. And then, you know, people go at it on Twitter. People call it out. They engage in conversations and, you know, people want to change things a lot. And so I'll have to try to connect you with some of those people um, because these, these conversations are just like they're pretty amazing to see how they unfold um, and how people are, are being challenged nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, well, let's end on a positive note, Aaron. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Whose work are you um, looking at at the moment that's either inspiring your own work or um, or photographers that you're looking at that you're really enjoying the narrative of? And I don't know, these two people that I'm going to name, they probably identify more as visual artists mm. as opposed to being pigeonholed and just to a photographer, but I would say Lorna Simpson and Leslie Leslie Hewitt, um, two very amazing artists that I continuously look at. And I'm the work that I'm doing oftentimes overlaps with what they're doing. I see the new things that they come out with and I'm like, wow, that's the same thing I'm sort of looking at and investigating in my own studio. Like, wow, I just can't believe that. But um, they're a black UK photographer. Her name is Adama Jalo. I hope yeah. I pronounced that right. But yeah. I've loved looking at her work over the last few years, and it seems like she's gaining a lot of steam. So um, we can we can share our inspirations. It's these conversations that keep me buoyant and excited about what's to come next. Um, and I really appreciate the the, the thought and the time that you've put into answering these questions. I just feel really enriched by this conversation and um, we must keep in touch for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to sit down and talk with you today. <laughs>